Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. A while for you to really meditate on and grasp why we're really talking about the seriousness of biblical unity. All right, first of all, we know that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all unified. In a few moments, we're going to learn how that when we trust Christ as Savior, we are now in Him. Now, when we are in Him and Scripture says He is in us, that means that we have within us the unity, diversity, unity of the Godhead of all unity living within us. Now, if I have all of Him and that unity in me, and you have all of Him and His unity in you, and you have all of Him when you trust Christ as Savior, but now you decide to allow Him to have control and abide in your life, getting rid of that sin, then you have so much of the unity of God within you and the possibility, potentiality, of having unity that now my unity with the Holy Spirit and God in, in Christ and your unity with God, Holy Spirit and Christ can now come together and our church will be held together not by our glue of unity. It'll be held together by the glue that's holding the unity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit together. He is in essence holding us together. And by all of that, it's not even just about unity. It's about our intimacy with God and then the tremendous influence and impacting we have on the world, which is ultimately what he wants. Sure, he wants us to be close to him, but there's so many deeper lifers that are in the closeness with God. And they forget that, yes, I'm to love him with all my heart, soul, and mind, but I'm also to love those who are outside and to make disciples of all nations. So a proper understanding of that unity is be so close to him, be so unified together that we glorify him by reaching out with that message of the gospel, which includes intimacy of unity with him. So now I need to answer the question, what is its foundation? Well, I'm going to go back to the prayer, if you don't mind. What's the foundation of this unity in the prayer? So let's look at number one. It's the pattern of unity called the Godhead. Spoke to that. Now let's look at it where you can mark it in your Bible. He's praying, the Lord is praying, that they all may be one. So if you will, circle the word all. He is not having any one of us left out of the responsibility of being one with one another. Every one of you, every man, woman, boy, and girl, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter who's come against you in the body, whatever you might be having in your life right now, God still wants us to be one. Then he uses the illustration, as you, Father, are in me. And then it says, and I, Jesus, in you, the Father, that they also may be one in us. Now just stop there. That they may be one in us or in the Godhead. And so our pattern of unity is going to be the Godhead. So if you want to say, can unity be achieved? Yes. If it can be achieved with God, the Godhead, it can be achieved with me. How can it be achieved with me? The more I'm willing to immerse myself in God, and this way I can say it, as I immerse myself in the understanding and the proper application of God's word, because that's where God is known to me through his word, and the spirit gives me that understanding, the deeper I'm in his word, the deeper I'll be in the Lord, and the greater I'm going to have unity. Chuck Colson he wrote a book that's a little old now, but it's still just as profound. It was a book on the church, the body. And here's what he had to say. Listen to this. The unity of the church expressed in our Lord's prayer in John 17 is not the kind of the unity that is being touted by the World Council of Churches. They have tried to reduce the elements of faith to the lowest common denominator. 
Now here's the sentence I like. True unity is not sought by pretending there are no differences, as modern ecumenists have done, but by recognizing and respecting those differences while focusing on the orthodox truths all Christians share. Now, why am I telling you that? <clears throat> we have to realize that there's going to be differences. We'll try to understand those differences. Maybe we're wrong, maybe they're right. We're going to look at that. We need to respect those differences, but we will not abandon ourselves from the core theology of the foundation of truth. Now, here's, your here's my responsibility as your pastor. As much as we can, either from the pulpit and from the Sunday school classes and the connection groups, we need to be providing for you as much as we can from this ministry, solid Bible teaching and beginning on at least the five core doctrines that we need to learn. We need to embrace those. And then from then we can understand maybe what others have, respect what they have, but at the same time, don't capitulate to what they believe and abandon what is real true just so that we have unity. And that's our point. Let me give you now the purpose of the unity. Remember the pattern is there's unity with the Godhead and we need to, to uh, you know, kind of tap into that. But now the purpose of the unity. The rest of that same verse in verse 21 says this, that the world may believe. Now in the context, it may believe all about the Lord and the oneness that was there, but there's a whole battery of truth that we need to believe. And part of that is that we may become a Christian and how important it is that we do believe. In my, in my opinion, I'm thinking that if we were truly unified around the solid core doctrine, not all this peripheral stuff that's out there, we may disagree, but that's okay. We still can minister with them, even though we disagree on these points on an external level, but on the internal, we're all together. I imagine that we will be more effective at local evangelism, global evangelism. Global evangelism. There's a lot of churches in this island. I'm not talking about all the denominations, but a lot of different churches. And I'm wondering if, without abandoning the core doctrine that we believe, then we might be able to do a better job at reaching these people that are lost on this island that we're really not doing. We bicker, we get into our own little holy huddles, and we really hinder working with them. Now, I understand that the Bible says to come out from them and be separate, and there are times that I will not cooperate with Roman Catholics. There'll be those that I will not cooperate when they are visibly known by the community that they believe that Jesus is not God, so I will not cooperate with the Mormons. I will not cooperate with people, churches, belief systems. They might believe that Jesus is God. I won't cooperate with them to believe that the Holy Spirit is God. I won't believe with them that God is God. If at the same time, they also believe that you must do a certain amount of works to get you to heaven. Because you can believe all that other stuff, but if you then add works to it, then what you are doing is saying that God is a liar when he said, all you have to do is believe. When you're saying that Jesus Christ is God, but what he did on the cross wasn't enough, it wasn't good enough, you have to add to it by yourself, then they really don't understand the true Jesus of the Bible. And when they don't look to the Holy Spirit as the one who convicts us of sin, empowers us, and watch this, seals us once we believe that we have to keep on doing good deeds to go to heaven, then that's not the Holy Spirit of the Bible, even though they might claim that Holy Spirit is God. So there are some times that we have to divide. But by far, there are a lot of true blood-bought, born-again believers in Christ that we can reach for Jesus Christ. 
If I could use our missionaries for a moment, if I had them all up here, we're going to have a good bunch of them that are part of World Vision, which is the CBA you know, mission group. Then you're going to have some, the Campus Crusade. You're going to have some with Child Evangelism Fellowship. You're going to have others with different groups. Some have their own organization, like Mike Silva. All have different organizations. But if they came up here, they'd look you right in the eye, and they said, we don't just believe that Jesus is God, God is God, the Holy Spirit is God, salvation is by faith alone, and the Word of God is sufficient. They will tell you this. Every single one of them would walk up to this microphone and say, we may have different belief systems on, do you think you'd had elders or deacons and maybe their music style and maybe some things about some of the other issues. But they'll look you right in the eye and they'll say, not only do I believe those five cardinal doctrines, I'd only teach those five doctrinal card- those cardinal doctrines. I not only will defend those doctrines, but I am willing to die for those doctrines. So it doesn't matter the organization. It doesn't matter what they believe and sometimes even what it will cost them when they do believe. But yet, the church goes on fighting. Let me read you a little parable that I found sadly cute. The wedding guest had gathered in great anticipation. The ceremony to be performed today has been long awaited. The orchestra begins to play an anthem and the choir rises in proper precision. The bridegroom and his attendants gather in the front of the chapel. One little saint Her flowering hat bobbing leans to her companion in the pew and whispers, Isn't he handsome? And the response is agreement, My, yes, he's the handsomest groom. And one by one, the beautiful bridesmaids come up, heralding the the new bride who'll be here shortly. They begin to stride in measured patterns. Several flower girls will throw rose petals upon the white, unmarked aisle cloth. The sound of the organ rises, a joyous announcement that the bride is coming and everyone stands and strains to get a proper glimpse of the beauty. And as she turns the corner and faces the groom, there's a horrible gasp that explodes from the congregation. This bride is like no other. In she stumbles. Something terrible has happened. One leg is twisted. She limps pronouncedly. The wedding garment is tattered, muddy. There's great rips in the dress, leaving her scarcely modest. Black bruises can be seen on her bare arms. The bride's nose is bloody. An eye is swollen. Yellow and purple. It's all discolored. Patches of her hair look as if they've actually been pulled from her scalp. Fumbling over the keys, the organist begins again after the shocked pause and the attendants cast their eyes down and can't look at her. The congregation mourns silently. Surely the bridegroom deserves better than this. That handsome prince who has kept himself faithful to his love, should find consummation with the most beautiful of women. Not this. His bride, the church, has been fighting again. And I hope that when the Lord comes back, he doesn't find us all battered and bruised, not by outside enemy, but by friendly fire. I hope, if anything, that he finds a group of people that are so well-oiled together because they've chosen to be in the same unity that the God has is toward one another. And that we as a church will not see it's us for no more shut the door, but that we will partner with every person who believes those cardinal doctrines as we do. And that together we want to have everyone come getting ready for the soon coming of our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ for us. I want him to come and look at us and smile and Perhaps if he has to even say this, and I say this as humbling as I can, that if there's any church that ever had true unity, it's going to be right here at International. I pray that that could be. 
You know, as I look at all of this, maybe that's why there's such a moral decay in the world today is because the church has lost a degree of its power. I wonder if maybe that's why we're not reaching the world. And watch this, folks. This would be a little painful. I want you to know this hits me very frequently. I haven't got it all sorted out. But I'm wondering that at a time the church had so many more people going into full-time Christian service, and it seems like less and less that's happening today, yet there's more people on planet Earth, greater needs than there were, wealthier Christians perhaps than there were. And I'm wondering if our children are hearing us talk about all the problems in the church and the problems that are going on in ministry and the problems with people, that they see all of this stuff and they go to church because you're frankly bigger than they are. And so we have to create a more exciting arena for the kids to attend. But we're still planting these seeds that don't go into church work. It's nothing but hard work. It's tough. They really beat up on you. And this is bad. You want to get into something else that isn't like the church. And I'm wondering if maybe that's why kids, when they finally have the freedom to, to go out and explore, that they experiment and explore outside the church. Some of them don't even go into Bible college. They often go on the mission field. And the church is not growing its leaders like it did at one time. And it's really not the fault necessarily of radio and television and all that's out there that we want to blame it on. It could be very well the conversation we have as we drive home in the car or they hear us say on the telephone. And we have hindered them from seeing the power that could be in the church because we've allowed the little things to crowd out the most important things. And I pray that's not the case. I think right now we have probably the most brilliant theologians. We probably have the, the highest technology. We have the most beautiful buildings that churches probably have ever had. And if you've gone into the, some of these state-of-the-art churches with the greatest technology that's out there, we have the most gifted communicators. There's more seminars, retreats, conferences. They've got web conferences now. You don't even have to leave your house. You can watch it. They have all of that going for us. And yet, we're not able to affect our culture. Now watch this. Worse yet, the power has been so stripped from us because of our infighting in churches today that not only have we not been able to fight this culture and to redirect the culture, but that culture has impacted us. And I pray that won't be here. Let me give you number three. And that is the power of unity. We saw the pattern of it. We saw the purpose of it. Now, the power of unity is the power of a godly life. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We're not talking about organizational power. We're talking about spiritual power. We're talking about living a life filled with the fullness of God and the Holy Spirit. Let me share something with you. You saw in Matthew where the Lord talked about, upon me, I'll build my church. And a short time later in another book, but in less than three years, Jesus then gives his most profound prayer, which was for those people and the future people that they would be together in one, just like the Godhead was. And it's interesting because when the Holy Spirit came down, which is a part of the unified Godhead, in Acts chapter 1, in chapter 2, the New Testament church basically had its beginning. Acts chapter 1, they kind of get the rumbling, the, the little seed is cracking open and the church is beginning to grow. But really it's in chapter 2 that this church now takes off. And if you read the next six chapters of Acts, what you're going to read is a church that is so much together because they are now experiencing the fullness of God. And it was through that New Testament church that we really saw the greatest and fastest expansion 
of the body of Christ ever. And then it was later on that he had to deal with some problems in the churches, etc., with the leaders. But coming back to this, I really believe that, again, it's all found in allowing the Holy Spirit to really take control of our life. And I pray that it'll be the case. I had an interesting thing happen to me this week. I was so moved by it <clears throat> that I want to share this with you. Uh, this past week in our church, we... Um, some of us that were in leadership felt like we needed to go in a particular direction. We'd done our homework. We prayed over this thing. We really sought it. And I had two people in the church, very dear friends of mine, that didn't, didn't see it the way I thought it should be seen personally. I could be wrong. I'm not saying I'm right and they're wrong. And they voiced their opinion of the way it should be. And they did their homework. They did their prayers. They had rational reasons. There were absolutely fantastic reasons. But it still was different than what I was sensing we should go. So... <clears throat> Word got to them that as good as their, their ideas were, it, um, it's not where we're going to go. And I want you to know that that is very, very hard for me, people. I know you might think that I'm Mr. Rough and Tough, Hard to Diaper Pastor. I'm real driving. I got my opinion. And I'll tell you, I've got plenty of opinions. I may not be right, but I'll always have an opinion, you know, kind of a thing. But sometimes when you have to come against people that you love that may even be right, and you still sense it. You still think you got to do this. It was hard. It's hard. Do you know that in less than 24 hours, I received a phone call and an email separately from those people telling me again that this is what they believe. And here's how they handled it. They said, but pastor, I'm a team player. And I believe that if you believe the Holy Spirit wants you to do that, then I'm going to go and I'm going to support you and you know that I'm going to be going with what we need to do. And you can count on me to be a part of that group. I'll support you. Didn't mean he always agreed. Didn't mean she agreed. But the implication is, I'm going to go for the sake of unity. I shot an email back to one of those people. And I gave him nine reasons why I respected that person. And told him that after this whole event is over, I'm going to revisit their suggestion and see if maybe next year we can make some mid-course corrections. Now, why am I telling you this story? It's because that you can have a healthy dialogue, hopefully speak your mind, but then you have to yield to what God wants to do. Those of you who are guests or just new to our church, if you think, boy, the pastor must sense a lot of disunity in this church, read my lips. There'll always be people that'll color outside the lines differently than you, but there is no split here. There are no people that are going back that are trying to vote a pastor out or to kick a staff member out or, or get a group of people to start their own. That's not going on. That's because this church has come to realization that they want to be just like the Godhead, totally together on all these things. Well, you'll notice that my dear friend Trevor read this passage of Scripture to you. Would you follow along as I read this to you now? One more time. But now with what you've heard already, maybe this will have a greater impact upon you and maybe from this perspective. And it goes like this. I mentioned to you how that Jesus says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Then in John chapter 17, he talks about how that the, the Godhead is one and that we would all be one in the Godhead. But isn't it interesting that if you take it all the way back to the Old Testament, that even in the Old Testament, the Lord wanted to have unity and how much he prized unity in the believers. And here's what he reads. He writes, he says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. I love the word dwell there because it doesn't just say, say outwardly that we agree, but inwardly we have all this fighting and disagreement. We live together in unity. 
It is like the precious oil upon the, the head running down on the beard, being anointed for leadership. The beard of Aaron, the priest, running down on the edge of his garment. It's also like the dew of Hermon descending upon these dry mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. And what is that? Here it is. Life forevermore. And if you want to, would you circle the phrase life forevermore? And I want you to draw a line up to the phrase to dwell together in unity. That life, that life-giving freedom is when we dwell together in unity. And I pray that we'll walk together like that. I'd like to end with a, a story that happened in Canada. There's a little girl that she went out to go play and when she didn't arrive home at the appointed time, obviously mom and dad were very nervous about that. And so they called the townspeople together and said, our little girl hasn't come home. It's going to be cold tonight. Would you please help us find our little girl? And so the townspeople, very much like people around, very much jumped into this and said, yes, we'll be glad to help. So the townspeople scattered and they looked all over the area for that little girl and they never found that little girl. So they came back. It was now becoming nighttime. And they told the mom and dad, we didn't find your little daughter. And so they were really scared now because the evening was going to be ice cold and this little child didn't have all the clothes necessary to keep her warm overnight. And we don't know what has happened to her. But one little teenage guy, like one of our teenage kids right here, raises his hand and he says, you know what, why don't we do this? Why don't we all join hands together and go out to this field nearby just to see if she stumbled and fell in the field. And everybody says, we tried everything else, let's try that. So they walked outside and they all joined hands and the whole town went around this field looking for this little girl. And it wasn't but just a short time later they found her and she was all curled up. The problem is she was dead. And so what happened then at the memorial service, they were doing all that they could to encourage mom and dad and pray for mom and dad and express their most sincere sorrow that that child was not found. But also at that memorial service, different people were in groups and if you could hear them, they were saying simply the same thing, but in just different groups, and that was this. If we had only joined hands together sooner and done this, we probably would have found her. And I'm just thinking that maybe how many of churches and maybe us, if, if we would join hands together and come around other people that are hurting and help redirect them and love on them and be patient with them, that they won't become a casualty. How many people right now are sitting at home or on the beach or going somewhere else that they're trying to overcome some of the feeling of not being a part of us right here but yet not being a part of somewhere else and they're just kind of drifting, lost. And they too could become a casualty that we could reach our arms out and try to bring them in. Now let me quickly bring this in the balance. Unfortunately, in today's society, even with Christians... There are Christians that like to play the victim. They're always going to have a problem. It's always people are beating up on me. It's always nobody sees it my way. It's always nobody ever calls me and all this stuff. If that's where you are, I'm wrapping my arms around you right now and I really love you. Get over it. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And life isn't fair, but it is just. I'm glad that our church is coming together in unity and we have this great unity. But if we want to wrap our arms around one another and reach out to those, we've got a bunch of people that are going to be beat up and hurt and tired coming in from the mission field. I don't know what they've gone through. 
And we who are in leadership, we've learned now that we need to mask some of our hurts because if we tell you how badly we're really hurting, you guys will probably leave the faith. And so they're going to tell you about how great things are going. But when their head hits the pillow at night, they're wondering what their ministry will be like when they finally return. They're wondering why. What happened to that big giver at one time all of a sudden quit giving to them? What about my kids? And they were one time walking with God, but now I see them doing things that aren't right. And if we would wrap our arms together around those missionaries and we commit ourselves to do whatever we can to strengthen them, I'm going to tell you when we leave, they're going to go away from this conference and they're going to say to us, you've given something to us that's way more than money. You've given to us the strength to go back to our field with a greater vision and a greater power, which now we can build the kingdom of God. And that's, we may not have a lot of money to give to them, but if we can give them ourselves and our love, the unity that we have, speaking the same thing, how strong our missionaries will be. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Make it clear.